0: Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, uh, joined this week again by my good friend Cyprian Ivanov. Hey, Cyprian. Hello. And a
1: blue-collar lawyer with a white collar.
0: <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, this week, we are going to uh, talk about some timely news with Scientology. Some court-related stuff happened this last week. Two cases that have been uh, going on for quite some time had uh, some uh, negative activity, I guess you could say, some uh, some judgments against us uh, on the uh, pro-Scientology side or anti-Scientology side. Um, So we'll discuss a little bit of that, and we're going to talk more, though, I think, the intent is for this week, that we're going to discuss leadership, executive philosophy, executive uh, uh, leadership ideas in Scientology, and specifically, uh, I uh, kind of, I don't want, what do I call it? It's not really a workshop. It's not really a seminar. It's more of a program that people can do on the, um, uh, as I will jokingly refer to the HMS Freewinds, this, this, the Sea Org's vessel, the Sea Org, uh, uh, motor vessel, the Freewinds, which is basically a really big yacht. Um, very, very, very tiny, uh, you know, uh, ocean liner and, um, and they offer this program, uh, uh, which we'll talk about. So we're going to get into some of that today, too, and sort of critiquing and talking about that, because Cyprian brought it up to me as this thing of, like, what is this? And I was like, well, <laughs> let me tell you. And so we, we we had some some discussions about that. So, uh, so Cyprian, how are you doing this week?
1: Uh, this is hoping to get back into the swing of things and... Uh, I really my God what the heck is going on with Scientology lawsuits
0: Yeah right right it's a uh, it's a little there was there was some some steps backwards this week there was definitely not not some good news in this in this realm um, in fact I'm just gonna read a little bit from Tony Ortega's reporting on this because it's the most concise way of getting across what happened. Um, basically, there are two cases. There is a case of fraud against the Church of Scientology by Luis Garcia. This has been years in the go- in ongoing case, and it was uh, kicked to arbitration, religious arbitration, which according to the contracts, the contract law that we, Cyprian and I have talked about in earlier episodes, breaking down scientology court cases where we've we've sort of analyzed this stuff um scientologists are made to sign legal contracts binding contracts and included in these are um if you have a problem with the church you leave the church you don't like the church you have some issue with the church you're going to resolve that through mediation through arbitration um cyprian do i have the wording of that right is that basically how that works
1: uh, yes, there are a series of contracts uh, that largely seem to be operating. It's kind of unclear if it, their contracts are separate or as a whole, but the basic premise is that when a person takes a Scientology course, they end up signing a bunch of documents. Those documents matter. Mm-hmm. They may be boilerplate, but that but when trouble happens, that boilerplate gets applied, Mm -hmm. and courts will operate under the assumption that people have read it. If people didn't read
0: it, well, um, that's kind of your own fault. Right. But the assertions in these cases are not that they were not read. It was simply that the church perpetrated a... With Luis Garcia's case, the situation is that Luis paid the Church of Scientology hundreds of thousands of dollars over time for various services and materials that he purchased. And as part of that, he was also sold a bill of goods. He was sold on the idea that there's a giant cross on top of their Clearwater building, and he was uh, regged. he was solicited to donate money for that cross to pay for it right? as as it was presented to him is you give us 20 or 25,000 or 50,000 dollars however much it was and you'll be paying for this pinnacle cross this top on the on the on the top of our beautiful church building here in in Clearwater and he said okay and he gave him the money and then he found out three other people, two or three other people had been sold, solicited for the exact same thing. And he went, well, wait a second. He left Scientology. He had gotten all the way up to the very top. And he said, hang on, that's fraud. That's not right. You can't sell the same plot of land, the same cross, four different times. This isn't some symbolic thing. You you told me I was paying for this, and then you said the same thing to these guys. That's not, that's not right. That's fraud. So he tried to sue the church, and the church said, ah, "Da da You sign these contracts. You have a problem with us. You have to go to internal, our internal mediation process." And by the way, uh, no one had ever engaged in any arbitration of any kind with Scientology up to this point. Uh, this was the first time these contracts were this this legal ease was enacted. And so uh, Luis said, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. And there was a lot of back and forth. But the court basically said, nope, you got to go do it. Uh, you signed the contract. You said you were going to do it. And we're going to assume because we're, you know, this neutral objective court of law that doesn't really know a whole lot about Scientology and, and its destructive cult ways. We're going to assume that, that everybody who was involved with these contracts is operating in good faith. And that the arbitration is a, is a reasonable process, and that if you follow it, you should get a reasonably objective result. And the judge has no concept or clue that the Church of Scientology is actually an authoritarian destructive cult and con job. So they assume, because of these words and because of contract law, that this is all above the boards and everything's fine. And what's the problem? Am I, am I describing this properly, Cyprian?
1: close enough
0: close um, enough yeah there
1: there is the expectation that if there's a problem with if people actually had a problem with the arbitration they would have uh, figured it out before uh uh they signed the document right if they find out later Well, uh, then you better go through with it, and then we'll see what was the problem, if there is a problem.
0: Exactly. And that's exactly what Luis ended up doing. He did the arbitration, and the process was uh, very involved and complicated, and then the judge ended up having to get involved in it to a degree because it only could involve Scientologists in good standing with the church, so none of—you know, somebody like me— who is very familiar with Scientology and was a Scientologist for decades, I could never be part of that arbitration process because I'm not in good standing with the church. So the church is required to find three three to five people who are going to be the arbiters, but they have to be in good standing. Luis Garcia himself is not in good standing. He is a declared suppressive person. And this whole nonsense which I which I'm sure anybody who's followed my channel for any time understands now, you know oh he's declared a suppressive and these are Scientologists in good standing. You know automatically because of just that that there is absolutely positively no way in any using any metric you care to use that Luis could ever get a fair objective hearing in that circumstance.
1: But the steps were not apparently clear uh, to some of the courts reviewing it. Correct. Correct. And people say, well, uh, they kicked me out, so I'm probably not going to be welcome there. But you can still expect most organizations to have some idea of impartiality when reviewing it. Right. Or at least... uh, not being too biased against a person. right? However, Scientology doesn't work that way. It's not merely that a person has been kicked out. It's that a person is considered an enemy
0: who must be denied help. That's right. That's right. If not ruined utterly. And these and there are direct quotes and, and statements. I, I say
1: must as a imperative, not just a... Uh, not hyperbole.
0: Yeah. No, they must be. Yeah, that's right. And the reason why we're kind of talking about this is because We've looked at this case, and we've looked at some other cases involving um, Danny Masterson's alleged uh, rape victims, who are also trying to uh, engage in a civil suit against Danny Masterson. The same fucking problem. And the same problem's coming up. The exact same problem of you sign contracts, you have a problem with Scientology or Scientologists. Excuse me you have to go to arbitration and these women are quite rightly saying through their lawyers are you out of your fucking mind you want us to go back to the church of scientology the 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 organization that is enabling our abuser our our attacker and you want us to go sit in a room with our attacker and arbitrate whether it's right or not that the Church of Scientology is stalking and harassing us to prevent us from engaging in this criminal case against Danny Masterson in the first place. That's where you want us to go? You want us to go to that institution that enabled our abuser and and covered up the crimes of our abuser for all these years, and you think that's where we're going to get a fair shake? And everybody who reads about this in the public eye or via Tony's blog or hears about it here gets that this is absolutely batshit crazy to even suggest such a thing. But the courts have to entertain these because of the contract law. These women were Scientologists. They signed these contracts. And the court says, well, you signed the contracts. It was, you know, all all above the boards when you signed it. So... I.
1: Uh, arbitration is a prof- uh, is favored as a means of resolving disputes. Right. Uh, Congress uh, and the Supreme Court have repeatedly tried to emphasize that they'd rather have things handled by arbitration. Right. There are sometimes mandatory uh, dispute resolution hearings where judges try to get parties to settle rather than to keep on going to court. Mm -hmm. It becomes rather shocking when it's applied to a a case like Danny Masterson's.
0: Yes, exactly. And there
1: are evidentiary (laughs) rules that would allow uh, a degree of remove between the accused rapist and the alleged victim. But that's a degree of uh, formality uh, that's a provision within the formality of the court system not within arbitration and you might be able to say well those same concerns would exist here and therefore a an injunction but you'd have to make an argument about the scope of what judges could order with regards to arbitration interesting <laughs> and that's a legal question
0: yeah that sounds a little cryptic to me but i will say that um
1: Okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Judges can't do too much about arbitration itself, but uh, can they order a couple provisions? And that has to be argued about.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. So they could themselves look into and potentially modify the arbitration process or procedure based on how they see whether it's being conducted fairly or could be conducted fairly or not.
1: That's a possibility.
0: Okay. Now, to clarify what happened this week, Luis Garcia's case was basically, uh, they said, you know, they they engaged in the arbitration. It was exactly the kind of kangaroo court you would expect it to have been. That's exactly what it was. As Tony writes um, in the uh, article today, uh, And this was done, by the way, this arbitration was done back in 2017. This is how long this has been dragging out. And um, they said it was a joke. They were not allowed an attorney. They couldn't get a transcript. And Scientology's international justice chief, this guy Mike Ellis, disallowed about 90% of the evidence that the Garcias had brought with them. But the federal appeals court reviewed this and decided that it was totally fine and the arbitration stands. So basically, Luis Garcia just got fucked by the Church of Scientology and the courts backed up the church in doing that. Now, what you and I have talked about before, both with Luis's case and with these more recent cases against Danny Masterson or having to do with that— is that the lawyering in this was not exactly up to snuff. It was, it was, I'm it did much, not... I'm
1: much more satisfied with the lawyering in the Garcia
0: case. Okay. Uh,
1: a lot of details were articulated about how uh, Scientology arbitration, in this case, happening via Kamev, uh, was structured to be hostile to the Garcia's.
0: Okay, so they did make that case to the court that there's no way they were going to get a fair shake.
1: I, I think they could have articulated it more, given some of the uh, gaps and even the dissent. But uh, I really do think the majority was op- the majority opinion in the recent Garcia opinion mm-hmm. was operating under some false ideas about just how biased it would be Mm. and the manner in which it would be biased.
0: Okay. So they did communicate, Hey judge, we have very, very serious concerns about, you know, the objectivity of this, you know, Luis is going to get railroaded, but they could have made that argument a lot stronger. Yes. Okay. And
1: that's a critical argument. Yep. That is one reason why I think uh, there was the dissent uh in this uh opinion as opposed to in some other scientology opinions hmm. i think the garcia's articulated facts that can be the basis for a uh, a change in the law or a change in the decision in
0: this case you think they could appeal it again yes okay i i,
1: I think it would be more likely to be successful than in the, uh, Valerie Haney case.
0: Right, right. Okay. So at least there was a groundwork laid here where they could build on that and potentially fill those gaps or fill those holes in their argument on a second appeal where they could go back and say, Hey, no, look, really, I'm, we're really not kidding here. We did the, we did, we, we, we told you guys, this was going to be a kangaroo court. We did it. It was a kangaroo court, and you still keep telling us this is what we have to follow. This is not justice. I found it interesting, by the way, just as a point on this in terms of why we're stressing that the lawyering is really important here and why the arguments were—why they matter, is because— you guys watching my podcast or watching scientology in the aftermath or getting involved in in the world of scientology you understand the nature of it you understand what it's actually all about and what it's trying to do which is con and scam people the courts don't look at it that way they have to in fact kind of not look at it that way sort of look at it more you know like well let's give them the benefit of the doubt and you have to make a case to the court. Hey, this is not going to go the way you objectively, you know, fairly think it's going to go. This is going to be bad, and you have to go way out of your way to make that case to show the judges and give them reason to believe that this is not going to be a fair, you know, mediated process because case law and and the uh, rules regarding how judges deal with you know, at arbitration are that they are supposed to look at it that way. Even religious arbitration, they're supposed to go, no, nope, it's going to be fair. It's going to be clean. It's going to be wonderful. And there's not going to be all this, you know, horrible bias against their former members. But, you know, we know different with Scientology.
1: And part of that is simply the defendant gets the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Exactly. And in this case, Scientology is the defendant.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, so, some of it is simply... People will complain about anything. They will people will even complain if you give them money. Uh,
0: right. So
1: So judges and courts have to be cautious in overturning arbitration because the loser will always have a stake in complaining. Right. And people, are the most hyperbolic things ever, man. Uh, And because of the tendency of hyperbole in a lot of cases, serious accusations like those directed towards Scientology can easily look like hyperbole. Right. And it takes details and facts to determine that, no, this isn't hyperbole.
0: It really is bad. Exactly, and as as you and I have discussed in our earlier podcasts about this, you really want the lawyers bringing an abundance of evidence, of examples, of testimonies, of 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 policy quotes, and and you know things pulled right from L. Ron Hubbard's own words. To show, to make an abundance, uh, you know, to to kind of provide a what do they call it? An orgy of evidence. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> I have not encountered that phrase before, but um, <laughs> uh, I can certainly see that being apl- applied applied uh, in the Masterson case.
0: Yes, exactly. You just want to. You just really want to. Give them, I mean, the thing is, you don't want to give them a wall, you don't want to overwhelm them because the judges are people too, and they're not going to read everything you give them if you give them too much. They're supposed to, they're supposed to, they might not
1: reread it,
0: okay, but they're
1: supposed to read it at least once,
0: okay, got it. So, you okay, so you have to, so they have to consider what you give them, um. now here's the crazy, crazy, crazy thing about what happened yesterday, though. And, and Cyprian, I want your I want your take on this as a lawyer. You're trained at the federal level. You're used to sort of federal level law. Well, all
1: yeah. lawyers are educated in basic federal law. Okay. It's just at some point you're going to diverge and either focus on state, uh, like some of my classmates who took the bar exam in Maryland. And had to learn a lot of Maryland specific law, or you can squirrel away into a bit of a, the bureaucracy and focus on an entirely different area.
0: Right. Okay, cool. Um, well, what we have here is an interesting circumstance or confluence of events where this last week, on the same day that Luis Garcia's case was being thrown out by the 11th Circuit Court. Um, The uh, in Los Angeles at the same at the very same time that the 11th Circuit in Atlanta was certifying the way the Garcias had been treated in a kangaroo court. um, Justices in Los Angeles were alleging that there was no way to know what the women accusing Danny Masterson and Scientology of harassing and stalking them might go through. If they too have to go to arbitration, in other words, in California, they were, the 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 court was saying, "Hey, we don't know what this arbitration is going to look like. Why don't you do it, and then we'll come back and revisit it." And they're like, because, "Hey, we just went through this, you know." At the same time, over in uh, Atlanta, it's weird. It's weird that I this mean, both it, happened. It's to the deal.
1: difference between specific uh, unknowns versus general unknowns, mm. and generally. You can say Scientology arbitration is likely to be uh, completely uh, completely improper. Yeah. But specifically, there's no guarantee of it.
0: No, and but it's, it certainly could have been argued, given the fact that the one and only time that the Church of Scientology has ever engaged in arbitration, the single case study we have to look at, was the Garcia's.
1: And I'm, again, uh, the, from what you've told me of handling comebs between members of the public, yeah. that was arbitration. Yeah. So it may not have been titled arbitration, and the, the people arguing for Scientology might not have been aware that that would qualify as arbitration, mm-hmm. but it was arbitration.
0: I suppose. Although if the church isn't going to make that argument, because a comev is is also committees of evidence are not just arbitrations. They they often they can arbitration is a
1: role, not a not
0: a uh, formal set of procedures. uh, Yeah. I mean, Scientology doesn't really have arbitration. A They chose a Kamev format because that's the closest thing they've got to what the, what the world understands as arbitration, not because it was formed in order to be arbitration, if that makes sense.
1: Arbitration is a broad category. It could be yeah. anything from a bartender settling a dispute between two drunks uh, versus members of the bar. Uh, arguing in uh, what is essentially a court, but without uh, all the clunkiness.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so well, think, I'm just not sure exactly what. I, I, I mean. I, I, are you trying to make the point that all the comevs that have ever happened would be would be valid examples of arbitration?
1: If it's between members of the public who agree to abide by that decision.
0: Yeah, see, I don't know that that would be the case because the thing with Luis Garcia's arbitration is it was specifically a case being brought against the church. Which and is Scientologists the, generally don't do that.
1: Which is one of the things that makes this case uh, much more difficult. Uh, there is a principle that no man may be a judge in his own case. And, uh, when you get Scientology, uh, personnel being, uh, ordered to judge a case in which Scientology is a defendant, you're going to have some bias. Exactly. That's known. That's known. But it's still assumed that, uh, people are able to act somewhat independently at their own discretion. Scientology does not have that. Correct. And that part is the big surprise to a lot of people,
0: right? I mean, it shouldn't be, but of course it is because you have to make the case, and this is the thing that the lawyers who were lawyering for the Garcias or for Valerie Haney or for the you know um, Danny Masterson's other victims um, need to know, right? Need to bring to the court, need to become prepared with, and and it doesn't look like from based on your earlier you know reviews of of what was submitted to the court how it was argued Uh, And, of course, now the results we have with this latest uh, result in Los Angeles is that Danny Masterson's victims and Scientology's victims, because this is specifically about Scientology stalking and harassing these women, this isn't the criminal case. This isn't about Danny Masterson raping them. This is about Scientology stalking and harassing them after the fact of being raped so as to intimidate them and stop them from speaking up and and bringing charges against masterson so this was an effort by masterson and by the church to suppress and stop these women and and the court has now ruled yeah in order to resolve that you have to go to the church of scientology and get what we're going to assume is fair and legal and and fair minded and unbiased arbitration I mean, you wonder where anybody's head's at with this that they could possibly imagine that Scientology is going to be objective.
1: However, one thing that I think is very hard for people who are not familiar with the structure of Scientology to understand, and again, I say structure, is that the Sea org is the nerve tissue of Scientology. Right. That even though you have different corporate forms they all take their orders from uh, the Sea org Correct. Via the Corg, org That's they right. They are not effectively independent organizations. And it looks like it on the surface, but unless you start digging into how orders are transmitted via the Corg, org that's not gonna be clear on the record. Yeah, and exactly. And you have to do that.
0: And that's, and that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying the lawyering is not what it should be here, because exactly what you just said should be a vital part of the case being made to these courts that this arbitration is is nonsense. For example, I mean, I could show you right now, I could connect a dot with the C-Org and with these cases as to why it would be impossible for any C-Org member to render fair and objective arbitration to a non-SeaOrg member or non-Scientologist, or f- especially a former Scientologist, and that is point number one of the code of a Org member. I promise to uphold, forward, and carry out command intention. That is the very first thing every single Org member swears to, is that they will uphold, forward, and carry out command intention. What is command intention? It's what David Miscavige wants. David Miscavige clearly does not want Danny Masterson on the hot seat or Scientology on the hot seat or Scientology operations interfered with. That's command intention. So every single Sea Org member is sworn to uphold that. So that is an immediate conflict of interest with any idea that you're going to have objectivity in regards to the Sea Org. But,
1: and on the surface of that, that doesn't sound entirely credible from a more skeptical background because lots of people uh, agree to do, uh, to follow the orders of those above them, but they're still expected to follow the law and at least not engage in direct criminal activity. Scientologists have a history of uh, being willing to engage in criminal activity. And I think and the fact that it is effectively ordered, or at least strongly suggested, via a number of uh policies like the uh H-C-O-P-L, on uh, the responsibility of leaders. Mm-hmm. uh which right. Criticized uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the liberator of South oh, America. Oh, Simone,
0: Simone Bolivar.
1: Simone Bolivar of uh, not being ruthless enough.
0: That's, right. Or, That's his, right. or his mistress
1: of not doing things like handing the daughters of opponents over to troops to uh, well, that's right. We say, ruthlessness was uh, was his uh,
0: downfall. That's right. That's exactly right. And in fact, this might well be a perfect segue into our discussion on. Leadership seminars and conferences or whatever, leadership uh, programs in Scientology. I mean, these two things are actually intimately related now that we've sort of come to this, con- you know, this, this, this place where these two things are coming together. Because Scientology policy is crystal clear, And it reiterates itself over and over again in various ways about how you as a Sea Org member, as a Scientologist, it is mandated, it is absolutely expected that you will push power to the leadership of Scientology. And by pushing power, that means supporting, uh, reinforcing, giving money to, following the directions and orders of, in other words, complying with— the command intention. The command intention is a phrase used in Scientology. It has very special meaning. It is what L. Ron Hubbard intended for Scientology, and it is now what David Miscavige intends for Scientology. David Miscavige embodies command. He is with, like, like with a capital C. He is the head of the organization. He is command. His intention is command intention. What he wants is what Scientology does. And every policy and every bulletin that tells Scientologists how to act tells them to push power up to that command person and uh, do what he says, (laughs) Uh, basically. And if you don't, you're not a good group member. That is, that is the definition of an immoral group member, according to L. Ron Hubbard, is somebody who doesn't follow command intention, who steps out of line, acts independently, acts on their own volition, right? This is not good. This is bad. So that's kind of a very, very key core Scientology leadership principle. <laughs> to be a good leader, you have to be the best follower. And, uh, and that, of course, speaks volumes about why it is that Scientologists and Sea Org members will comply with what David Miscavige wants Rather than what they themselves might think is the right thing to do, or what the law says the right thing to do is no, 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 that's not what's important in Scientology. It's what David Miscavige wants. So um, that's a leadership principle that people learn. It's drilled into you in Scientology, it's not a, a, something you run across once or twice. It's actually a a, a philosophical bedrock principle of Scientology that you comply.
1: And it's not just that you will comply, even if it's illegal. It's that you take the initiative to resolve things, even if illegally, uh, without directly informing leadership. Correct. Correct. Which uh, can give a degree of plausible deniability, but it's still the responsibility of the leader. So, uh, uh, let the master answer is one of the, tr- one of the major legal principles. If somebody does it in their employment to further their employer, or at least in an environment that would suggest it, it's their employer's responsibility now. And they're going to be at least partially on the hook for it.
0: So you're referring, you're referring to that principle that Hubbard talks about in that policy. There's a policy letter called the responsibility of leaders, and this is a this is a bible for David Miscavige. Apparently, people who like Mike Rinder, who have come out from from Gold or from the management working under Miscavige have said that they have they have been forced to read this thing over and over and over again, that Miscavige lives by this. And one of the key principles of that policy, Hubbard elucidates a number of principles of leadership in that policy, and one of them is that you are to push power where you get power. You, you're supposed to have some power given to you by the guy who holds it all, and you back up that power, you back up that command person by... Um, taking out enemies, Uh, you know, somebody, you know, there's, there's, there's bad guys and good guys, in-group and out-group, right? Hubbard always sets this up. So as a leader, you're in charge of this group, and you've got this enemy group, this enemy camp, and, you know, if your juniors are going and beating the shit out of these guys and taking them out and not telling the leader about it, they're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. They don't need that. Hubbard says, "Don't tell the leader about that. Don't get him involved in your criminal nonsense. Just push power to him by taking out these bad guys." And that's what it means to be a good junior type figure. It's a pretty brutal kind of, you know, philosophy. It's a very it's, like it's doggy mafia dog expectations. It's what? What?
1: It's mafia expectations. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. There you go. That's exactly along the lines of what it is. It's a, it's a mafia moral code. Uh, but it's,
1: and I think reading some of the, uh, the text in question can really point out that it's not just petty crimes that are being discussed, not just uh, misdemeanors. He, the person in power, doesn't have to know all the bad news. And if he's a power, really, he won't ask all the time. What are the, all those dead bodies doing at the door?
2: That's and if it. you are clever,
1: you will never let it be thought he killed them. That weakens you and also hurts the power swords. Well, boss, all those dead bodies, nobody at all will suspect you did it. She over there, those pink legs sta- sticking out, did it like me. Well, he'll say, if he really is a power, why are you bothering me with it if it's done and you did it? Where's my blue ink?
0: exactly in other words changing the subject right okay thanks for thanks but don't tell me about you know the dead bodies over there just get me my get me my pen you
1: know? or giving a raise to somebody who got uh arrested for uh beating up uh, uh an opponent yep there you go guess what that is pretty clear indication that that is endorsed behavior that is textbook uh Unofficial approval, uh, which uh, really helps in attributing who the heck is responsible for this. That's right. Uh, One of the classic cases is, hey, there's a police station, and the government says they aren't uh, uh, tolerating uh, political uh, dissidents being beaten up. But here's this case in which a dissident was uh, beaten up uh, badly and died. And the cops who are investigated were uh, given raises. Right. That that stuff happened. Yeah. And that is how you freaking know that the government was a okay with it, if not directly ordering it.
0: Right. In other words, we call that kind of thing corruption, vice.
1: It is dishonest. It is tyrannical. It is not trustworthy behavior, which really goes into another issue with Scientology. Uh, the rampant dishonesty. Yes. And when you endorse dishonesty in one area, you have to worry about it spreading in other areas. Yes. And uh, let's bear in mind that people are probably pretty scared or stressed out in Scientology. And telling the boss good news, everybody, is uh, probably a lot easier on the person than telling the bad news. Well, and, sir. Uh, all dictatorships and despots have to deal with the fact underlings are gonna lie to them. And when you have that much lying going around, either the despot to the underlings or the underlings trying to survive, That creates a rational paranoia in the leader who doesn't know what's true, what's false. And it's easy to just accuse everybody and try to guess uh, once the dust cleared.
0: Well, it's interesting because this actually rubs right up against, you know, we talk, I've mentioned many, many times inherent internal contradictions within Scientology, and they are numerous, they're legion. There's many, many, many of these, and let me give you one right now because Hubbard, you you read, you know, you didn't you didn't necessarily lay out when you were reading, but you were reading from the policy earlier when you were talking about pink legs and you know don't tell me you know about you know this person you killed or whatever, um, Hubbard writes a policy letter and that is a, that's a that's a later policy letter that's like in the uh, uh anyway that's a that's a very very important one where hubbard says look don't tell me about you know the bad things you did in my organization to support me just just do it just 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 be a good junior and do your job and support me and kill the bad guys and and just get on with it right but Hubbard went to great pains uh, in the 1960s when he was first outlining security checking and, and developing it as a, as a methodology of control of Scientologists. One of the ways he sold it to Scientologists was this philosophical underpinning where he, where he explained in great detail that any member of the group is only a member of the group as much as he can communicate openly and transparently with the other members of the group. And it's withholds, it is transgressions, it's moral transgressions and withholds of those moral transgressions that destroy groups. He is crystal clear about this. I I don't know that he could paint it in a more black and white fashion if he tried. He he reiterates this principle over and over again. If you have withholds from the group, if you are withholding information from your fellow group members or the leadership of course, you are engaged in a moral transgression which is going to end up with you leaving the group and hating it. And the group destroying itself because of these internal secrets, this not communicating amongst one another. And I only stress it because he stressed it so much. And this is what I'm deep into right now in the research on my on my my uh, master's thesis. So. Hubbard is, is, is describing in great detail how every group in the world, in the, in the universe in history, has fallen apart because of internal lack of transparency. And then he writes another policy letter a few years later that clearly states... You are to engage in a lack of transparency within this organization, so as to protect the leadership and, and give the leader plausible deniability from your illegal criminal actions that you engaged in in order to support the leadership and support the group. Is this not crazy-making? Uh, well. I think there
1: are multiple reasons for the paranoia in Scientology. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a good way. That's a good response. Because <laughs> it's right. Because on both ends, you are treated to a, a, a sort of disaster uh, tale, right? It's like if you don't, if you're not transparent, if you're not open, if you're running around committing overts, right? Sins, moral transgressions, and you're not, you're not, you're not confessing them, you're not getting them off, you're not open and honest with your fellow group members, it's gonna be the death of the group. But if you don't support the leadership and do whatever it takes and uh, and go above and beyond and be fully responsible for everything going on around you at all times, then the group is going to die and suffer and and, and it's going to be horrible. And this is, and both of these things are held up as, you know, key, vital, important, urgent matters that must, uh, you know, of, of, of policy and compliance. So so I don't know how to make that make sense. I, I struggled for decades to try to make that make sense and it never really did. <laughs> well
1: that is I don't know how that is related to the general issue with not being able to trust Scientologists with money
0: uh, well I was only I was sort of segueing over to the point of contradictory policies because oh yes oh yes know, it, it's
1: contradictory policies but it's I I've noticed there's a lot of complaints about Scientologists uh, not being very honest about money, at least when it comes to attending events.
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh sure, absolutely. There's a there's a whole, you know. Hubbard talks about moral codes that develop within within cultures or groups. Right, every group has their own sort of set of agreements and and ideas and in you know it's in group in jokes in this in that and part of that. And Hubbard's right about this, and, and it's not any like you know. Uh, genius statement to to point out that groups come up with their own rules, their own ideas, and 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 culture. And within the world of Scientology, it's sort of this weird thing where it's uh, you, you know you need to see the reg in order to get up the bridge. You got to pay the money, but you hate being regged all the time. And so hiding from the regs is sort of okay within the group it's sort of an internal it's not a, it's not an overt it's not a transgression to hide from the reg because you because know eventually everybody would be on the hook for it it will exactly and you know that's exactly the point and uh you know you're gonna have to see the reg eventually anyway and pay that money so you might as well just get it over with but people hide uh don't take the phone calls don't answer the door don't you know they they hate it because because it's rapacious. I mean, these regs are that they just never take no for an answer and they never stop knocking on your door. So it's a kind of a push pull, you know, catch 22 thing. You're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, as far as being a public Scientologist goes. So most people take the path of least resistance and just avoid the regs as long as they can, you know, is how, how that kind of works out.
1: And uh, that. Pervasive pressure from the top and evasion from below can really incentivize uh, criminal conduct for the people
0: trapped in between. Oh, very much so. Like the uh, credit card scandals. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what happens. Because there are other leadership principles in Scientology that are just as cockamamie and crazy. And one of them is make it go right. Right. Uh, Where, you you know, it doesn't the, the end basically justifies the means when it comes to making it go right. That's Hubbard's way of saying, look, I don't care what you have to do. Just get it done. You know, I don't care what it takes to make the million dollar quota. Just get the money. And if that entails, you know, telling a few lies or charging a few credit cards where the people didn't give you permission to. And you pull off the big money for the week, you're the hero, right? And and according to L. Ron Hubbard policy, if your statistics are up, if your job is to make money and you've made more money this week than you made last week, then according to the uh, actual policy of Scientology, you can get away with murder. You can get away with committing criminal acts, in other words, because your statistics are up, you're productive, you're helping.
1: And that getting away with murder part is probably hyperbole, but with Scientology, you just don't know.
0: Exactly. Scientology is always worse than you think. So, (laughs) you know, uh, but this is this is actually encoded policy and 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 we and. It's a funny thing, because I spent a long time after I got out of Scientology, even talking to you know the public at large and answering questions and stuff, almost, I don't want to say I was engaged in Scientology apologia, because I wasn't. I was definitely critical of Scientology right when I got out. But I was kind of rationalizing or explaining a lot of... Scientology's policies and wacky ideas, excuse me, because when I first got out, those things still made sense to me in a way that they don't make any sense to me now.
1: There's an an internal logic to it, even if the contradictions exist. Yes. And the real study is how do people double think? How do they switch from one track to something else, even though they aren't really properly connected correct but you still have to remember people do it and there are some connections even if it is not a coherent
0: whole well that's that's right and I think what I'm trying to I think the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of my explanations for what Scientology was or the culture of it or how it works were really me explaining how I made it make sense Because when you dive into the actual Scientology, you read what Hubbard actually wrote. Oh, dear. It's nuts. It doesn't make sense. Or it really is as batshit crazy as you think it is. But you have to live with it as a Scientologist, exactly what you just said. It's called cognitive dissonance. You have to make this make sense. So you figure your way around it with mental gymnastics and you turn your brain into a kind of a pretzel to make it make sense. And you ignore the holes and you kind of pay attention to how it could make sense. And that's how you live your life. And it's not just in Scientology we do this. All of us do this all the time because we're surrounded by insanity and stupidity. We're, we're, it's life. But in Scientology, it's a little bit crazier than the rest of life. It's actually that nuts. So you have to make it make sense. And that's, I think, what I was, what I was, what I spent a lot of years explaining is, is how I made it make sense rather than what I do now, which is kind of just look at it and go, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> you <know>? Well, um,. <laughs>
1: Scientology is so full of disconnections and uh, note the double entendre there.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, Clever.
1: <laughs> that is perhaps a little harder to see how it could make sense. Yes. Because Scientology is crazy is not new. Right. Scientology is crazy making is not new. That anybody would stay in Scientology and think they're sane. That is a hard part to understand,
0: right. That's right. and that's and that's what I've been talking about for years is has how do how do we do that? How did we do that? You know? But the policies surrounding Hubbard's leadership principles, um kind of getting back to that a little bit here, is, um, They're they're contradictory. They're inherently contradictory, and they are, um, and not just because I'm sort of presenting them to you guys as a way that they look contradictory. I mean, they really are. I mean, this is not just my biased take on this. These things don't go together. You can't have a group where everybody is open and honest and transparent with one another, and this is a surviving, you know, mutually cooperative activity that Hubbard. Defines as your ideal group, you can't have that and also have the responsibility of leaders where he's saying the things he's saying in there. These two things don't integrate together, they just don't. They contradict one another. And it's up to the executives and the followers of Scientology to try to somehow make this make sense. And what you find when that happens is the executive or the leader might have one idea of how this makes sense. And a follower might have a very different idea.
1: And then what do you do? Which is a classic (laughs) leadership problem.
0: Right. Because then what do you do? You know, well, according to L. Ron Hubbard, let me tell you a third foundational principle about what you do. If you, as an executive in Scientology, are being presented with counterintention, right? Somebody's giving you shit. Somebody's telling you, no, I'm not doing that, or that rule doesn't make sense, or I'm not following that policy. Your job is to present them with something that is called a too gruesome.
1: Basically intimidation.
0: Yes. Your job is to intimidate them and manipulate them and coerce them into following your orders, regardless of what what they want to do or what they even think is the right thing to do. Because if they are being counterintention, if they are if they are showing that they are not going to, you know, comply, um, that means, according to L. Ron Hubbard, that their reactive mind is in full bloom. It's not them that doesn't want to comply, see? It's their reactive mind that doesn't want to comply. It's their subconscious id, their evil ego that's, that's at the bottom of it. And your job is to move that ego, move that id out of the way, I am purposefully conflating uh, Freud's terms there, by the way, because Hubbard just basically ripped off the entire concept of the reactive mind from these two concepts from Freud. So you you handle this by putting so much threat on that person's head that they would not dream of non-complying with you again. And that's what is called a too gruesome. You give them something too gruesome for them to confront. It's too gruesome for them to confront. I got to a point where, you know, sending me off to scrub dishes all night wasn't really that big of a deal to me anymore, but like my later years in the Sea Org, that was no longer too gruesome for me to confront. Oh, you want me to go scrub dishes all night? All right, I'll go do that. Beats doing this shit, right? So I'll go do that. So that's not a too gruesome because it's something I'm happy to go do. But if I had a big button on scrubbing toilets with a toothbrush, that um, would be too gruesome. Did, uh, quick question. Did yeah. you actually have to do that? Yeah. Or... I did. Okay. Yeah, your that job... Is... Your job as the leader, according to L. Ron Hubbard policy, I am swear to God, I am not making this shit up. The policy is called a model hat for an executive. And in this policy, L. Ron Hubbard clearly states that your job as a leader or executive is to creatively figure out what the too gruesome is for this guy who is giving you shit. And enforce that too gruesome on him in order to get him to snap out of his reactive mind bullshit and comply with your orders. Because the only reason he is not complying with you is because of his reactive mind. So by putting more pressure and more threat on him than his reactive mind is giving him, you override his, his internal, his threat. And you make him comply with what you want him to do. And that is how L. Ron Hubbard tells his executives to be executives.
1: Uh, Just thinking in Scientology terms, wouldn't that create a whole new series of incidents for the reactive mind to draw from?
0: Yes, it would. But now there's another principle we get to throw into the mix. No case on post. You mean
1: like uh, if a person is worried about their family and there's a a shooting near where their kids are kept, uh, they're not supposed to go check on them?
0: Correct. Shut up. Suck it up. This
1: happened. This actually happened, by the way.
0: Yes, it did. And many, many other similar things. So if I acknowledge that my two gruesomes, if if my punishments that I am meeting out on you, right, are hurting you, or counter survival to your survival, or somehow damaging to you. Well, too fucking bad. You should have complied with my orders in the first place. I don't want to hear about it. And no case on post. You don't get to complain. You don't have that right. So there you go. Right? So it's just shut up, do what I said, and if you give me any shit, I'm going to punish you Oh, but by the way, by the way, according to L. Ron Hubbard, um, domination is not the way to get people to comply with your orders.
2: (laughs) I mean, you just can't
0: win with this guy. It's just one double bind after another, after another. I mean, all the things I'm telling you, these are fundamental, basic policy points. This is not deep minutiae of Scientology, everybody who learns how to be an executive in Scientology learns all the things I'm telling you about, and they have to fucking somehow figure out how to make that make sense. And I'm, I, I, I'm a little more profane than usual today just because it's so—I I haven't really thought about all of this in, in one go in a while, and it's just blowing me away how awful— it is to put somebody in that position where you train them or indoctrinate them in these double binds and then set them loose and expect them to do a good job. I mean, is it really any wonder that every level of Scientology management is absolutely crazy?
1: No. And one of the, you're thinking in terms of the double binds, I'm thinking of the subjectivity Mm. when you have a subjective situation but uh, evaluate subordinates as if it was a simple objective one, you're going to end up with variation because subordinates are seeing a variety of things and they're going to interpret it differently. Yep. And unless the s- supervisor has a clear idea and communicates it to their subordinate, uh, they're going to assume that uh, the differences are, not, are just refusal to comply instead of lack of clarity for orders. Mm -hmm. So how does, within the framework of Scientology, how does a leader distinguish between counterintention and their own lack of clarity?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Hubbard does state in one policy that orders should be uh, clear, concise, and, you know, and executable. If you give people orders that they can't do or too much to do or, you know, unrealistic quotas, stuff like that, you're going to create problems. You're going to create apathy and you're going to have a problem with, you know, people being able to comply with what you want them to do. So maximally, you need to be right more often than you're wrong is, is basically how Hubbard's advice on the matter. And that's about as far as he went into it.
1: And if it's simply acknowledged as... These are guidelines, these are ideals, but we don't realistically expect a person to work 48 hours Mm -hmm. uh, on high-detail material uh, with high amounts of energy. You're going to end up either burning people out, driving them insane, or not having the work done.
0: That's right. Or, or all the above. And if you push it too
1: hard, something's going to blow up.
0: Yep. That's right. And that's what happens all the time. And because Scientology executives are only armed with these tools in their toolkit, you know, and it really does come down to a matter of, you know, here's your hammer and everything's a nail and get to it. Um, you know, I was in that position and it was really only me. Sort of thinking on my feet and sort of refusing to get into the two gruesomes of of motivation, you know, the domination, motivation through domination. I I thought I had a better idea, <laughs> and because I didn't like being talked to that way, you know. And as a Sea Org executive, I didn't enjoy being at the blunt end of somebody's hammer. So. When I was in a position where I was directly in charge of people and and was ordering them around, I tried something different and i and I was amazingly successful for a few months at that um but the system you know sort of demands compliance with this bizarre set of uh, of orders and instructions from Hubbard so you don't get to don't get to step outside that box for very long before you You know get hit yourself
1: yeah scientology is weirdly focused on interpersonal displays of dominance
0: yes it really is and
1: people swear like a sailor but as if the as if the sailors were trying to get people to do something instead of just normal talk
0: yeah yeah well there's you know when you combine the things we've talked about with the impending doom that L. Ron Hubbard constantly was painting the picture of for Scientologists, where we don't have a lot of time. We don't have an infinity of time to get the job done. You know, it's a tough universe. Only the tigers survive, and even they have a hard time.
1: Wait, I thought Titans were immortal.
0: Yeah, right? Again, more double binds. Shh. So, you know, we've, we've, when you combine all this stuff with this time focus, with this, like, we don't have any time to get anything, to get stuff done. We're constantly cutting corners. We're constantly trying to get things done just good enough so we can, you know, expand, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you 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 end up with a culture, a climate of of gross inefficiency, you know, just just and very short tempers, people constantly at each other's throats. I mean, you just can't help it because of the nature of of how every of how all this is drummed into all the people who are there. so it's uh, it's it, it it doesn't really matter. I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, Miscavige is now engaged in a full revision of all of Hubbard's policies. And this is going to be a big, the next big thing Scientology's going to do. You'll watch this roll out in the next year or two. And, um, and it's not going to matter. It's not going to make a. It's not going to make one iota of difference. How many revisions Miscavige makes, if he doesn't change the basic nature of, of, of the, uh, of how Hubbard wrote into the DNA of Scientology, this abusive, authoritarian—you know—sort of attitude that you have to have as an executive of Scientology. You, you, you can't revise a policy letter or two and make that go away. It's baked into the into the very fabric of the subject. Is is I think where I'm trying to go with all of that.
1: Yeah, uh, very true. I'm trying to think about how. Some Muslims uh, try to contextualize uh, some of the more brutal acts under Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and they argued that it was because of specific circumstances, not a general command. And that might be true. That might not be true in the case of Muhammad. In the case of L. Ron Hubbard, mm-hmm. You end up with a situation in which it was so so broad, widespread and endorsed that it's pretty clear that was meant to be that way.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we saw this reflected, by the way, in the way L. Ron Hubbard himself ran the C organization for the first well, all the years that he ran it, actually, I mean, it really didn't. He, it's not like he calmed down in his later years. He was, he was just as nutty at the end as he was at Good the beginning.
1: Grief, the intimidation on the on the was yeah. the Apollo. V-
0: yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you, what have you heard about that? What do you know about that?
1: Um. Put a kid in a chain locker, and uh, let's remember that uh, an anchor chain uh, can get pretty disgusting uh, yeah. after. Uh, just a just a while, uh, and the kid was apparently not old enough uh, to be able to understand what was properly going on. So, uh, four, four
0: years old, four year old kid. Well, that's a
1: catastrophe.
0: Yeah, yeah. The kid's lucky he didn't die in the chain locker. The <laughs> chain locker is the thing up front where the where the anchor chain gets wound up, and so when the anchor drops, that chain unfurls, and then when they pull the anchor up. The chain ratches up. You got a little kid in there with that chain going back and forth. He could die in there. I mean, you get, you know, that, that's, that's very, very unsafe. Um, how about pushing peanuts down the deck with their noses on the wood humiliating. deck?
1: Humiliating. That's humiliating, but not especially horrible. I mean, that's still not something you'd expect to see in normal circumstances. But I think throwing people off the ship.
0: Yeah, then the overboards.
1: That is risky enough that I would consider that to be, even as an unusual display of anger, that would be definitely no-go. That would be improper.
0: Exactly. And Hubbard didn't just have one or two people thrown over the side of the boat, by the way. This was a routine... Normalized activity for a period of time, Hubbard was just having people thrown off the side of the boat. If they engaged in some technical action or some uh, version of non compliance that he didn't like or heard about, you could get overboarded. And this became a formal procedure. There was a little thing they said and, and everything. So, uh, and it was definitely a um, punishment activity there's no question about it nobody was doing it out of fun thought it was a good time taking swan dives off the side you were thrown off the side it was meant to be um you know manipulative and uh demeaning and and horrible and it was and
1: an easy way to kill someone
0: (laughs) yeah that too they're very very lucky hubbard is uh, incredibly lucky that that there were not more serious injuries on those boats so that's that's so that's what we see you know it's not like this is a rocket science you know if 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 L. Ron Hubbard's policies resulted in you know something like Amazon or something you know you might you might have some reason to second guess them but these things are just awful through and through we
1: can't say that Scientology is brutal but efficient
0: no it's brutal and it's inefficient
1: Well, at least he made the trains
0: (laughs) slow to a halt. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Didn't exactly make the trains run on time. So So, apparently
1: the nautical theme is still strong with the Sea Org. uh, And there's this Compton and leadership course uh, going on on the free winds.
0: Yes, exactly. That's how we got onto this whole thing in the first place was uh, on the boat, right down in curacao where they have it i think in dry dock right now it's been down there for you know years without too many passengers coming around they haven't actually been sailing around in quite a while but they have a program
1: they allow passengers in a dry dock
0: Yeah, they bring passengers in when they're on dry dock, yeah. They don't, they don't, no, 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 sorry. They rent a hotel space. They don't have them actually come on the ship while they're in dry dock. Oh, They rent a hotel space and they do the services over there. It's
1: within the organization of the free winds, but it's not in the industrial environment of a dry dock.
0: Yeah, exactly. While it's in dry dock, I don't think they're doing this program, by the way, because it requires a functioning ship to do it. But who knows? they could modify their program, and you know it's really just a matter of giving people a bunch of degrading, demeaning work. They th- Hubbard had another idea, another philosophical underpinning of his of his uh, view as a leader was that crew's uh, tough, efficient, uh, well-oiled machines of people are only made through grit and uh, trial and, and error and threat. So he said, for example, that, um, you know, that a naval crew isn't really worth shit until they go through combat. I I don't know how he would imagine that he knows this since he never saw combat, but Hubbard put this forward that, you know, it is only a ship crew that has gone through combat that really coheses as a team. And I will certainly give that, you know, uh, tough environments and tough experiences can bring people together, but it can just as easily drive them apart. So Hubbard's basically full of shit on that point. But it was a point that he stressed over and over again, and it was one of these points like the fact that groups are supposed to be transparent and open and honest with one another. Like that, he said that um, you have to put teams, you have to put people through um, real hell in order for them to be tough, efficient, you know, good solid groups or organizations. And so the idea with the C-Org and with this leadership seminar is to put people through physically and psychologically trying circumstances in order to get them to toughen up and cohese as a group. And so that is one of the principles that they use uh, when they're also training executives. And that's, that's why they offer a program on the ship where you are going to, you know, get a little uniform and work with these other people on the program and learn how to tie knots and learn how to run around and learn how to scrub the deck and clean this and clean that. And they basically give them a sort of a sea org light experience <laughs> is kind of what they do uh, with that program.
1: Um well, uh, I saw an ad uh, that was leaked featuring Captain Napier. Yeah. And uh, apparently it was supposed to teach people about leadership. mm mm-hmm. uh, And they showed people handling basic things like knot tying or handling a, a launch or uh, a very light gas mask for firefighting, I guess. Yep. Uh, and it look to be just a lot of um, little tasks that have nothing to do with leadership skills, but which have a lot to do with confidence.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. Because there is this idea in Western culture these days and has been for quite some time that you can train leaders and really, what you do is you build up their ego and you build up their confidence, so that they they come across as though they know what they're talking about.
1: And I mean, you can probably train leaders, but uh, inflating confidence is probably the quickest way to get people to say they're a leader.
0: Well, that because that's what people imagine leader good leadership is is it's people who know what they're talking about or sound like they know what they're talking about, and that's not what good leadership is at all. But that's that's what people imagine it to be, so they they sort of personify this with this, you know, with this program in the Sea Org.
1: It looked to be just like another uh, corporate uh, teamwork Mm -hmm. uh, event where it was things like Trust Falls and uh, uh, apparently you're all paddling a boat together and things that have little to do with the ability to coordinate or the more abstract parts of teamwork. Uh, that are sometimes situation dependent, uh, you probably need a different set of skills to coordinate uh, in a military command center than in uh, uh, a soccer team versus uh, in a uh, uh, international coding uh, project. Oh, These absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Teamwork is a relationship. Mm-hmm. But during trust falls and paddling a boat really isn't going to contribute to it, either of those.
0: No, but they, but but there certainly are no shortage of people out there who seem to think they will, and it's it's a matter of trying to instill a couple very simple, very basic ideas. One, you, there's more to a group than you, right? There's a team. There's a group of people around you, and. You know, these people are important, too, and you have to recognize and respect their their presence and their, you know, their contributions to things. You have to be able to communicate with the other members of the group and have them communicate to you. And somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to be giving some direction and and some sequence of events or here's what we're going to do. And the most basic piece of, uh, procedure, I suppose you could say that Scientology offers for you know good leadership is a program, a series of actions you do one two three four five in order to accomplish an end product or goal or target. And so they have the idea that if they get people together, you know, bring sea Org, bring Scientologists onto the boat in a Sea Org environment. Where they have the idea that the ship itself is already this very well-oiled, super-efficient, totally crisp team. That's how the that's how the free winds is sold to the rest of Scientology is that this ship crew is the most efficient, well-drilled, well-oiled machine in the in the uh, Caribbean anywhere, right? And this is the best boat on the planet, you know, according to Scientology. So what other place would you possibly want to go to learn how to be part of such an effective, well-oiled machine and learn how to be a leader in that machine? That's the marketing. That's the positioning of the whole thing, right? But really what you walk away with is, Oh, yeah, I got to participate in some team drills, and I got to learn what a program is, and I got to give some people some orders because they rotate who's in charge, right? So, oh, I got to give some orders, right? And that's about it. That's it, It's a few weeks, you're done, and there, there you go.
1: And Scientologists pay money for that.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they do. Here's how crazy Scientologists are. Okay, <laughs> when I was on the RPF, you know, I have regaled y'all with stories about the RPF, and it's and it was quite the gruesome experience. Um, I can only laugh about it now because I'm so many years out of it. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that the RPF in charge told us repeatedly is that there were Scientology public who would pay to do the RPF who actually tried who wanted to do the RPF <laughs> tried to pay for it because they thought from outside looking in that it was going to give them a similar result to what they thought this leadership thing on the boat was going to give them right which is discipline confidence you know uh, teammanship etc uh no the RPF didn't produce any of those things <laughs> But we were told that Scientologists, you know, had, that there were, that, that, that at least a couple Scientologists had said, you know, hey, I'll pay good money if you let me do the RPF, right? And I thought, okay, those people have no idea what they're talking about, but okay, you know. Uh, so that's, so that's how nuts Scientologists are. So there you go. Just wanted to throw that out there.
1: Well, um, uh, looking at the promotional video, and I know Scientology promotions always have very weirdly, excruciatingly painful-looking faces at the end, Uh, but the video of people running seemed to show people who were cheerful. And I can believe it. It looked a lot like... Uh, A bunch of people getting to get out of their normal rut, go through uh, some physical activity, do some nifty things, and feel like they were doing something productive. Yeah. And they got a nice ego boost and confidence boost from it. That's right. There you go. It's just a corporate leadership retreat uh, that's probably no better and possibly a lot worse than a lot of uh, leadership training programs but they got a lot of fluff about it and hype, and the hype has its own effect.
0: Well, it does, and I think mostly what you're seeing in terms of smiles on people's faces or success stories written off of this service is the short-term, you know, whoa, it was so fun to work with other people I've never met before and stuff like this, right? I mean, it's really the the novelty of the experience that they're responding to more so than the substance of what they learned. Because, remember, and I I will argue that this is significantly worse than any other corporate retreat people might be going to because they're being indoctrinated on Elron Hubbard's leadership policies. And as we went over, these are these are outright destructive policies. So, I don't want to you know it's it is it is definitely funny. There's a lot of ridicule here, and there's a lot lot of room for for laughter in this, but I do want to be clear that, you know, these people are being indoctrinated in extremely destructive principles in terms of the, the skills, quote-unquote, that they're learning, and they just go back and make a hash of it 100% of the time, so... You know, so this is really just another counterproductive effort on the part of the Sea Org to, to give a little bit of the Sea Org to the public and make them feel as though they're benefiting from it when, in fact, they're just being abused, you know.
1: Is the responsibilities of leaders, uh, uh shown to the public? Yes, it is. Oh, my.
0: Oh, all the time. It's, a, it's, oh, in the, it's in the book, The Introduction to Scientology Ethics. It is part of um, the Introduction to Scientology Ethics course. It used to be featured prominently on the Life Orientation course, which was a really big deal for a while in the 1990s. That service has since pretty much died. But absolutely, public have full access to it, and, are, and it's referred to often.
1: Well, I'm reminded of Trump University. Ah. Uh, Leaving aside the parallels between uh, rich egomaniacs.
2: Yes. (laughs)
1: uh, uh, Some people were attracted to Trump University because of the way it was endorsing ruthlessness. People guessed that ruthlessness produced results,
0: Mm.
1: beneficial results they wanted, not just A whole bunch of enmity and a loss of cooperation
0: right right well that's uh that's where people miss they you know it's people have weird ideas about about ruthlessness and about a lack of care and compassion for for people you know in a in a command structure or in a in a corporate situation um I think this is glorified somehow through media, through movies, you know, it's it's it gets people's attention because threatening people are, you know, are noticeable, are people that you pay attention to. You sit up straight, whoa, what's this, right? Here's some guy yelling and screaming at people, or here's, you know, Trump about to fire somebody because every week somebody's getting fired. So there's a threat level there. And that is the thing that that raises attention and you know, gets the, the hair on the back of your neck standing up and gets you like, whoa, what's going on? Is, you know, something dangerous is happening. That's fine on a short term, on an immediate right now, there's a fire, we got to put it out kind of thing. That works. On a medium or long term look, though, it's, it's a completely counterproductive. And it, it is so disappointing and sad to me how, how long it takes to get that across to people. And how you know we it, how long it's taken to sort of turn the tide and turn the ship of human behavior, you know, that goes in that direction where you know ruthless, tough, mean-spirited, uh, uncompassionate dickheads rule the world, and everybody thinks that's the way it's supposed to be, you know, and it's really not. It's just it's Or it's even really the something. people at the
1: top might not be lacking in compassion. But uh, try instituting a policy. There's trade offs everywhere, and someone will always be unhappy.
0: Yeah, no but that's not what, what I'm talking do. about. You know, I'm talking okay. about the L. Ron Hubbards of the world who lead uh, by domination. I,
1: I'm, I'm a little too used to the people saying uh, driver's licenses are tyranny
0: yeah uh, I know but I'm not trying to both sides this. this to is, deal with that yeah we're we're talking here about a style of leadership that's authoritarian and there's a trend in the world today uh that we've commented on for quite some time John Atac and I have talked about it as well that you know that, that in order for authoritarians to to lead in order for them to to, to to make their way in the world, they have to have followers and followers have to look up to them and go, yeah, that's, that's what I should see. That's what I'm supposed to see. That's the right way for this person to be. And there seems to be this craving amongst a certain set of the populations in the, in the Western world and in the Eastern world these days for authoritarians. And it's not a good trend. It's a trend we need to push back on hard. And that's that, you know, if this has any real world relevancy if our conversation has anything to do with 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 the real world it has to do with that you know that 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 this is these are not positive traits in leaders and and these are things we we do not want to see out of them
1: um there's one i'm afraid the term authoritarian is a little vague because okay. Uh, Well, uh, authoritarian gets applied to a lot of different uh, systems and personality types. Uh, So I'll go with um, reliance on uh, dramatic displays of intimidation.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah, manipulation by dominance, I suppose you could say. Coercive, you know, coercion. I mean this is uh, this is what we're really coming I mean, there's down to is some coercion control.
1: in all societies hmm? because humans there's going to be coercion in all societies because humans are not perfectly cooperative.
0: Well, and yeah, not, and I'm I think not. we can I I think we can narrow the target a little bit when we look at the actual definition of authoritarian I've um, seen if we multiple, take it
1: What's that? I've seen multiple. Well, let me give you one. one. Of,
0: I mean, it says here, favoring or enforcing strict obedience to authority, especially that of the government, at the expense of personal freedom. You know, here's that, the thing. Within the context yeah. of what we've been talking about, I think we're pretty clear on pretty clear ground. Of, yeah,
1: okay. It, take, it takes context, but I've seen people complain that, drivers, that oh, no, the I government know. is authoritarian for driver's licenses, so...
0: Yeah, I'll I, just
1: go with, uh, I'll try to describe it rather than using a single word.
0: Fair enough. Well, I, you, but, know, you know me, I love being reductionist.
1: <laughs> you also probably grew up where there was a greater assumption that people were using this, had the same meaning for words. Well, I
0: think uh, that, I think the podcast we've discussed, I think, I, I think our podcast has given words like that context. I think we've I think we very clearly defined what the context is that we're talking about here and we are not in any way referring to you know the excesses of sovereign citizens and the nonsense they get up to we're talking about the other end of the excesses where the leadership really is engaged in you know manipulation and domination and coercive control and that's what Hubbard was all about. And he espoused this philosophy through a few different principles we've talked about here today that he called leadership. You know, it's, and a, I, great
1: I, man, it's a there's there was something called the great man theory of history. Hmm. Uh, that great men drove science and war and politics. Nah. And part of that was because it was simply so much easier to teach history by pointing to how individuals intersected with a lot of things. And people, unfortunately, assume that simply because those individuals uh, intersected with those developments, uh, that it was the individual who started it, rather than the individual being carried along with it. Right, right. But, uh, and, and humans do, individuals have a place. Uh, the French uh, Empire under Napoleon, probably would have been very different if somebody else had been in charge, but some kind of counter reaction to the excesses of the revolutionaries was gonna have to happen.
0: Right, right. Well, it makes sense. And yeah, I think Hubbard certainly subscribed to the great man theory of history because he thought of himself as the greatest man.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and when you have an ideology of the great man as the source of all these things, then subordinating uh, processes to them makes a lot more sense. That's right. Well, what are these rules going to accomplish if uh, they stand in the way of the great man bringing great things?
0: Right, which is why the ultimate sin in such a system put together by such a person is speaking out against him. It's not committing murder. It's not committing some atrocity. It's not committing sexual assault. It's speaking out against the great man. That becomes the ultimate crime in that paradigm. And that's, that's, I, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up. That, that gives it a whole, whole other uh, way of looking at it. Well,
1: um, I also lost my train of thought.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh, well, but, I, thought, uh, I thought that was a good I, one.
1: <laughs> I think bringing in a whole bunch of examples from the Soviet Union and China and uh, other places where uh, uh, lots of horrible crimes like murder were allowed, but uh, criticizing the leader was not.
0: Exactly. My point, that it's not just L. Ron Hubbard. You know it's Chinese authoritarianism it's Korean authoritarianism it's Russian authoritarianism it's Western authoritarianism I and mean, we see we see you know bits and flavors of this in in every government system but when it becomes the dominant discourse when it becomes the dominant way of deciding situations or the dominant way of treating people and that is the case in Scientology that is the case in North Korea that is the case in China then you've got real systemic, cultural, you know, societal problems. And um, and that's where it comes from, is it comes from leadership that is that has this weird, great man, authoritarian sort of, you know, I'm all that and you guys aren't. And so I'm going to say it and you're going to do it. And that's how we're going to have a group, <laughs> you know, and uh, that's L. Ron Hubbard in a nutshell. So... Uh, I can't imagine that going to any kind of leadership seminar or, or or program where you're going to be indoctrinated by this in this flavor of leadership is going to be a very helpful or constructive activity.
1: Well, um, was it uh, uh, Jeff Hawkins who had gotten out of uh, Scientology and then started working at a company, and he decided, well, maybe I. I still believe in Scientology. Maybe I can bring in some of the management tech. And then he saw that, hey, he was working shorter hours and being more productive and uh, the workers were happier. And if they're better on all those things, than the results produced by Scientology, was Scientology management tech actually all that great?
0: Yeah, exactly. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Exactly the point. You know that's a great example too, because that's exactly what happened to Jeff, and he it was a it was a bit of an eye opening experience for him. I uh, I think we're going to start wrapping up. Well, a uh, uh,
1: final point. Yeah. When you have an assumption that the leader isn't just a node for information flowing in, but that they of their own skills. Uh, Have some special competence, then it is very easy for them to substitute their own biases for the judgment of subordinates and that can cause a lot of problems. Mm. For example, the habit of inserting one's own uh, background assumptions for unknown factors and I think that plays a role in a lot of accusations towards people.
0: Mm. Uh, like what would be what would be a specific example of that? Just for the,
1: the, the people listening. Well, uh, one example: um, the daughter of an air force pilot. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, described her father as being very angry that she didn't know how to do some basic things, like, oh, say, uh, make a bed in the military manner. Or uh, the kinds of math that would be required of a high school student when she was in elementary school. Sometimes it's easy for people to assume other people know the same things they do. Oh, sure. And yeah. Or hold them to the same standard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. That's a, that's but they a common challenge. not had time fallacy. to
1: develop that way.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And when you have, okay, that's one problem. The leadership culture of relying on seniors to know everything
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, contributes to it. Mm-hmm. But let's think: if they're an immortal and wouldn't they know everything already, <laughs> or at least a whole bunch of skills? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, that was Hubbard's pipe dream. He he wanted it to be that way, but it never really did pan out.
1: Well, in such a situation. It's intellectually coherent for the leader to punish the subordinate for being ignorant as opposed to just trying to word things better or trying to make sure the subordinate has actually been taught stuff. And even though Hubbard put some effort, put some, uh, spilled some ink saying, yes, yes, you should have people, you should train, don't hit that still kind of conflicts with the assumption that hey, once you've tapped into your past lives, man, you'll know how all these
0: engines work. Well, it was even worse because it was. Okay, you're you're exactly right. I mean, you're right on track with how Hubbard talked to Sea Org members, except it was even it was even worse because it was. I don't care if you've even had a single day of auditing. And tapped into any of your past lives, you're an OT because you're a Sea Org member. Therefore, you, because I say you are, you are. And therefore, you are cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form. And therefore, make it go right. You can do anything I ask you to do and more. And from one point of view, from one perspective, that is very empowering. And from another perspective, it is unbelievably uh, abusive. So it's, you know, it it really is so context specific as to how it gets utilized. And unfortunately, I can tell you from decades of experience with it, that um, giving and receiving, uh, you know, on this, that it is routinely used in an abusive fashion.
1: I believe there's some talk about toxic positivity uh, being a contributing factor to pushing people into uh, damaging
0: situations. Yes. That's right. It's a thing. You can be toxically positive. You can be toxically anything. Too much of anything can be bad, right? Including positivity. (laughs) You know, because because uh, it can. I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. But you know, bottom... for the
1: moon, and you'll fa- at least you'll fall among the stars, or land in London, killing people.
0: Yeah, exactly. As Ferdinand Broad showed. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Cyprian, thank you very much for joining me again this week. I appreciated all your input and and uh, the contributions here.
1: Well. Um... Now I kind of wish that I knew more about the legal situation because that's going weird.
0: Yeah, well, you know, dive in. Maybe we'll do another podcast about it. I would hope to. Yeah, cool, man. All right, folks, thanks for coming around, listening to us chat about all this. I really hope we were able to pass on some information to you this week that you didn't have before, maybe about Scientology, maybe about leadership, maybe about all of these things. And, of course, the, the Scientology legal updates that are going on are not, it's not good news. It's not great news at all. But hopefully, you know, by telling you guys about it, by by educating people about what's going on out there, maybe we can somehow influence the right number of people in the right way that, that we can somehow get these courts more informed about what's going on with Scientology as it really is practiced and get some justice for these victims that's that's really at the end of the day all i really care about you know it's 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 not the legal ease that it, that it fascinates me it's the demand and desire for justice that i really want to see with these women and with Luis Garcia in his case as well and um you know in analyzing and breaking down the nonsense that is scientology i hope is is informative for for you guys as far as you know being able to do something with the data to help you out in your day to day. So that's my effort. Thanks for coming around and listening and watching and and all of that. And I will see you guys next week.
2: Bye-bye.